Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of our podcast where we interview Tristan LaMonica. Now, Tristan is a really cool guy, and he has a really, really awesome story that he is articulated in a fantastic way in our conversation in this in this episode. And it's it was such a funny interview because we were referencing back in the day, back in the day being 2013 and 2014, because that's when he got into the space. Um, what was really awesome was drawing comparisons on how the space was, the kind of discussions that surrounded Bitcoin in 2013 versus the kind of discussions that surround Bitcoin now and, and the difference between the both of them and also Tristan's journey into learning about money and becoming involved in the space and then not involved in the space but then rekindling with Bitcoin because of lightning. So. This was a fantastic interview. It was great to hear Tristan's perspective and his story about being involved in Bitcoin and how he got introduced it, introduced to it, and also what he does on a day-to-day -day basis. So, really awesome talking to him. We loved, we loved chatting with him. We'd probably want to get him back again because we had such a great conversation and such 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 an exciting story. And I'm sure that you will too. So, let's begin the episode. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Margokshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. Hey, Tristan, how's it going? Very good. Thank you. I love that you can see the difference in, uh, in sunlight between <laughs> both of our places, but <laughs> even though you're only an hour, well, clearly. Yeah. That's true. We're going to see yeah, beautiful colors in the background as the sun sets. <laughs> exactly. Right on. So I found you on Twitter because I saw some interesting comments that you made um, on on something that I was following, and I was like, "Wow, we resonate really well." Um, so I wanted to bring you. And when I went to your profile, I saw PM in Bitcoin since 2013. I saw your pin tweet, and I looked down, and then you uh, the pin tweet was about how you made 0.000 some number of a transaction on the Lightning Network for a fraction of a penny. And I was like, "Okay, this is our guy." need to get a story on our show. So let's start with, well, your name is Tristan. We figured out it's pronounced La Monica. <laughs> and tell us about how you got into Bitcoin in 2013. Yeah, it's funny to see those old pin tweets. I think back, and that was only a few years ago, with the Lightning Network, but I think back in those days, um, actually like the education on that wasn't as prevalent as it is now. So I feel like that was a bigger, bigger deal than a it yeah. was back then compared to now where a lot of people, sure. it's much more mainstream now, but I remember like actually proposing that before and it was kind of still a new concept, still in its beta form. But uh, yeah, I got started in 2013. So the days were so different back then. Um, so Bitcoin Twitter wasn't really a thing. Crypto Twitter wasn't a thing um, or it probably was, but a lot less people. Um, but I remember we would just uh, communicate on the Bitcoin talk forums. And I think even like the conversations were a lot different. And sometimes I do wish we went back to those kinds of conversations, very technical conversations, uh, potential upgrades that we can foresee. There was a lot of drama back then, segwit changes, all of that. But uh, I do kind of miss like the, the fundamental conversations we had back then compared more so to what it is now. Um, but I discovered... Bitcoin in 2013 after doing a uh, high school program in computer science. 
so discovered it through that. And then how, ever how since exactly then, though? Because this was like 2013, like you said, there's no Bitcoin Twitter. How, how did you come across that part of the internet? Um, I was looking at computer programming uh, for one of our courses where we had to make our own flash game, computer game. And I think I fell down some kind of rabbit hole with <laughs> YouTube's algorithm. And I found, I found out uh, Andres uh, Antonopoulos, uh, great educator. So that's, that's actually the person who introduced me to Bitcoin. I remember, I think this was a year later in 2014, but he actually spoke at the Canadian Senate. This was way back. And I remember watching the full clip of that. It was about two hours long. And that's when the rabbit hole, I think, started. Um, but the path back then, I think I made a lot of uh, not so good decisions. You know, back when you first discover the, the technology, I remember I was very much into the education aspect of it, but didn't fully understand. You know, I think Bitcoin was trading at a couple hundred dollars back then. And I remember having some and then the price would go up $50 and it would be time to sell and buy something <laughs> tangible. Uh, since then, I, I've never made those mistakes ever again. Um, but really interesting to see how it kind of migrated from that very like niche educational with uh, Andreas, who actually still is, is very prevalent in the community and, and still is exceptional. But weird how everyone kind of has their different the different ways of discovering it and since then i think it's kind of been the continuation of that rabbit hole so continuing to go on um still have a fascination for like the computer science aspects and the cryptography um, i'm more so on the communication side now which i think you've seen uh with my current role less on the the computer programming side but it's still very much something that i think for all of us here consumes us <laughs> most of our time Oh yeah, 100%. I like I don't think that a day can go without learning something more about Bitcoin and how it has impacted someone somewhere in in the world. Um but I, I want to ask you how you've noticed the transition from the kind of conversations that took place in 2013-2014. Um and I'll give you some context for this. When I was going through I'm still on my own journey with learning about Bitcoin and falling in love with Bitcoin and sometimes having that love-hate relationship. So um one of the times when I was like, okay, I have to steal man myself, I have to play devil's advocate. And I went down a YouTube poll found arguments against Bitcoin. And I found this video made by Coding Jesus. And he was one of the people that mined Bitcoin early on. He used to trade it among his friends. He was also one of those people that um, would talk about it on forums. And he made some very good arguments on what Bitcoin was supposed to be and what it has turned into now. And that's why he doesn't like it anymore, or it's not the Bitcoin that it was meant to be. And he put some really, really good arguments from his perspective because he'd been in it so early and the, what, what Bitcoin is used for now has sort of become uh, because of the public's belief, which, you know, for any sort of money, it's very important that the belief exists. So I, I want to know more about how you how your perceptions have changed about Bitcoin since you discovered it based as opposed to or that journey of when you discovered it until today. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think like similarly to um, what you were saying, I think back then it was a lot about potential upgrades, not a lot of talk about price, to be honest. We were still within the, the price discovery of, of Bitcoin. So people would give out these uh, pretty random numbers in terms of what they foresaw the price to be. But a lot of the conversation was real in regards to startups that could be created or the possibilities of Bitcoin, the protocol, rather than uh, Bitcoin, the currency. 
Um, then we kind of went on to uh, talk about like Bitcoin, how we could interact with our everyday purchases. So how can we actually replace the dollar with Bitcoin? Uh, not a lot of talk about store of value, if I remember correctly back then. It really was people wanting to pay with Bitcoin for a cup of coffee, uh, for their everyday goods. That really was the initial goal of it. And that was pretty much all the conversations we had back then. And that's the vision I always foresaw was the need to pay for goods and how cool it would be to, you know, walk into a Starbucks or walk into another coffee shop and be able to pay. Um, back then, you know, fees were a lot lower. So that made a lot more sense. Uh, and then we went away from that conversation for a bit. And now we're kind of at the store of value. I think that a few years after, that's kind of the, the conversation that happened and what the narrative was, replacement to gold. People are focusing more on the, the 21 million cap, uh, how, you know, just owning a little bit of it can actually down the line benefit you a lot. Um, but I took a break in that in that middle period came back when the second layer was introduced. So when the Lightning Network was back, um, I think that really brought us back to the initial goal of, of what Bitcoin was. And I think that's maybe why it, I kept it there as a pinned tweet, um, because in my opinion, it kind of brings us back to what that initial conversation was, which was being able to pay for goods, very low fees, but still keeping the decentralization, still keeping all of the benefits of uh uh, settling on the main chain rather than all of these different uh, altcoins that I've researched through my master's in terms of decentralized social media networks. So I, I know the uh, mostly the cons of those. Um, but I think now we, we're back at the conversation where it, it is more about the second layer and it's much more in the mainstream now, which I think is why a lot of the original Bitcoiners are now back in the conversation because it's now actually feasible again to uh, to pay for for goods and services with uh, with Lightning. So an exciting time to to be back back in the biz, I guess. Um, but there was a drastic change and fluidity in the conversation that happened, um, which is interesting too. Right on. You know what I just realized? Cash, uh, Bitcoin. You know, peer to peer electronic cash system and looking at finance books and whatever financial advice, you're not supposed to keep too much cash on hand because the purchasing power of cash goes down over time. So only as much as you need, et cetera, et cetera. And that right. wasn't always the case. You know, cash didn't go down in value over time, but Bitcoin or more specifically SATs are the new cash where the purchasing power goes up over time. So I, I really am like just that just hit me when you were talking about how it was, you know, and back in the early days talking about paying for a cup of coffee or going to Starbucks and paying with with Bitcoin and how we're going to go back to that, except it's going to be with paying with sats and how over time, you're, you know, your cup of coffee is going, the price of it is going to go down over time instead of going up over time. You're right. Uh, that touches on like the good point of like the psychology of it too, how we kind of transition from 0.0001 to pricing things in sats, right? I think the psychology of that makes a lot more sense when we're talking about the second layer. Uh, paying something in sats, psychologically, at least for me, is slightly less hurtful, even though we know it's an asset that appreciates over time. It feels less bad buying something in sats than it does spending 0.001. Hurts a little bit less, um, but yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I like the transition from uh, using the decimal system to just saying sats and micropayments and doing all of that. I think that the psychology of it makes a lot more sense too. I, I want to actually circle back around to the, 
the store of value and medium of exchange. Like it kind of sounds like the early conversations were more about medium of exchange um, as, as the primary use case for Bitcoin. Um, but like, I think now in 2021, there's been a lot of discussion about how the store of value actually like needs to come first. It's a, it's a necessity to be a store of value before it can become of um, a medium of exchange. And I'm just wondering if, if you have an, a, some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think uh, probably my uh, Michael Saylor was one of the big ones to kind of bring uh, bring right. that at least into like the public sphere when people are talking about having a store of value and keeping it on your balance sheet, not not to spend, but just to have it as a store of value. Um, I agree. I think now principally it's it is a store of value, right. uh, which is why I think separating that to uh, the smaller decibels of Satoshi's makes a lot more sense to kind of separate how people think of it psychologically when they're storing, uh, let's say in their hardware wallet and their, their cold storage, their Bitcoin, but also having a smaller wallet with sats that they're able to spend and replenish as they see fit. Um, I would agree that because of what's happening uh, in the financial markets now, and I'm no expert in, in finances, it's not my background, but I watch a little bit of the news. So, I mean, I know generally, <laughs> generally what's going on and, why I think people are looking at it as a store of value, the, there is benefits to that. And I think right now, just given the what's happening in the economy, at least in Canada, but also uh, in the States, as we've been seeing, and uh, El Salvador, you know, different countries. Um, we I actually think like, didn't store get value into, is a big one. We didn't get into your background and what you do now. And yeah, what are you doing your master's on? All of those <laughs> questions. Yeah, so... Uh, I started off uh, working at the parliament as a data scientist and then moved on to uh, be an advisor with digital comms, uh, which meant that I worked with a lot of the big social media companies. So the Twitter, Facebook, uh, the Instagrams, um, which over time you start to get a, a distaste for those larger companies, uh, which, which was why I started my master's in comms um, at U of O in Ottawa. Uh, and I wanted to somehow link Bitcoin to communications and because I knew that's what I wanted to talk about. All of the advisors were saying your thesis topic should be something you won't get bored of. And I think like the best case study was that, uh, you know, been involved in Bitcoin for like X number of years, still very much obsessed with it, not bored of it. So probably a good thesis topic, but connecting it to comms, I think was a little difficult. <laughs> I actually want to ask like a, a really niche question here. It's, it's kind of yeah. might be abstract, but I just want to get your thoughts on it. Um, Breedlove, I'm sure you're familiar with Robert Breedlove. Have you ever heard his articulation on how like an Austrian economics uh, free market system is actually a communication system? Like I want to tie that back into what you were t uh, talking about with your degree. And no, no way. I've never I heard of that crucial for 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 your understanding actually i i think that you you'd latch right onto it and it would just click for you um he gives one example of uh and i hope i will do it justice but there's a copper mine in peru and it collapses and there's a shortage of copper and the people buying copper in um in the the new york stock exchange they don't know about the collapse in um in peru they don't need to know that's not the point they know that the price just went up and now their life has changed. And in that sense, it's a, it's a communication network. It's through the free market actors that price will rise, the ripple effect will, will change, and it's a way of us all actually agreeing on, like in a decentralized, computationally decentralized way, agreeing on what the price of things are in general. 
I wish I would have discovered that uh, <laughs> before I started <laughs> writing my thesis because that would have been perfect because linking communication theory to Bitcoin, I found extremely difficult. That would have been the perfect segue to it to actually build on top of that comms yes. theory. Um, unfortunately, I went the other way and I thought about social media networks because that was my expertise with what I was doing uh, during work. That's uh, hyper relevant. How we, <laughs> it, right. I guess more so now. Uh, a few years ago when I wrote it, uh, people were thinking about it in those platforms. So uh, the thesis was how we could have peer-to-peer -peer decentralized social media networks, but running on top of the second layer of Bitcoin. And yes. basically awesome. what the thesis took a look at was all of these decentralized social media networks that already exist, uh, why they're not working. And the TLDR was that they all choose to create their own different coins. They're not benefiting from the network effect of anything. Uh, the price of the coins basically go to zero. There's no incentive for the creators to create any content from that. Uh, so it's a really interesting case study on how we could use the second layer for something other than micropayments um, and how we can actually build on top of the protocol itself, kind of like how the internet has different application layers, TCP, IP, all that kind of stuff. So how we could kind of create a social network based off of that. Um, so we took a look at, uh, BitTube, which was like the decentralized YouTube, uh, still up and running today. But, uh, <laughs> I think if you take a look, there's, there's not that much content on there. Steemit. Uh, then took a look at, yeah, steam it. I took a look at the decentralized Reddit. Um, then they became Hive, now. didn't they? And then it became Hive after the whole Justin Sun takeover. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was hilarious. And another case study as to why creating your own crypto coin doesn't actually work that well when you're trying to build something that is decentralized. Um, but, you know, there's always incentives when creators choose to create their own, their own segregated blockchains. And the thesis was just exploring how uh, negative those effects come from it. Idea can be potentially good. I think the idea of building a platform like that is good. More the more I think about it though, and now that a few years has passed, I think Twitter is doing a really good job now at potentially bridging the gap between being a centralized social media network, but also utilizing Lightning Network that we just saw. Yeah. Um, it's not available to us yet in Canada, I think. No, no, I just <laughs> no, turned mine on yesterday. Been, yeah, it, it was oh, it? last week, but I, I think they upgraded it yesterday. Amazing. So yeah. I gotta I gotta switch it on. Um, but I, I think like the more I think about it now, uh, in my ideal world, we would have a decentralized social media network. The more I think about it now, because of that network effect and how difficult it is to onboard people on a different platform. And I know Jack Dorsey's working on Blue Sky. I think he's calling it, which is like his decentralized Twitter. But the more I think about it, the more I think that what Twitter is doing now and trying to bridge the gap between being something centralized, but also utilizing some decentralization of you know, tipping and potentially more down the line. Um, I think that's probably the right way to do it. Um, so what, what's but, your thesis around like um, combating misinformation and like the botnets that essentially can can manipulate the public perception? Like, is there is this kind of a social media platform that can uh, combat that kind of activity? And, and you're looking at me kind of weird there, Murga. What's what's up? <laughs> No, you said, what's your thesis about? And I was like, no, wait, he just told us what his thesis was on. What are you saying? No, like, I know like, what you mean. Yeah, like how to, how it would combat it, if at all. Like it might be a problem that we just have to live with, like fake news and misinformation. But I have a hunch 
that there's something there. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, there was a section in my thesis that actually spoke about how when when we reviewed the decentralized alternative that exists already, um, it kind of become uh, (laughs) a very specific subset of public discussion where uh, a lot of these individuals were discussing uh, more on the right side of politics, so very far right. Um, there's there's one network that's not decentralized, but it's uh, Gab.com. So they tailor themselves as like a free speech network, which I found a lot of these decentralized networks kind of became after a little bit where the discussion was about politics, about right wing politics, freedom of speech, that kind of thing. And part of my thesis was talking about how for it to be a successful decentralized social media network, it would have to cater to all political spheres, right? Not just for, for the far right or for the right but it would have to have a broader conversation. In regards to bots or misinformation, um, we didn't take a look too much at that. Um, hopefully though, I think the incentives of actually having a monetary network embedded on the decentralized social media network uh, would kind of filter out those, those bot activities where people would be financially incentivized to post quality content rather than uh, have bot activity post fake content. Um, becomes more of a complex conversation that I don't think I'm qualified to to answer. I know it would be a problem. It was a problem with the decentralized alternatives, but so far, I don't think anyone's really found a way to combat it effectively. And even the centralized platforms are are having a hard time. So do you think that there's a a connection between making it cost money to post um, and uh, well, just making uh, and and a reduction in in the, the 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 fake news, because right now you can you can paste or post fake news for free, right? It doesn't cost me anything to to spam or to come up with a story that's that's not true. Now the same you could like make money off of a, a fake news thing, but I wonder if there's a balance here and if we would see an overall reduction in spam and fake news if it actually costs money to interact with such a platform. Take a look at, um, there's one platform that runs on top of Lightning that is kind of like an SMS telegram group. I forget what it's called, Sphinx, I think. Sphinx yep. chat. Yeah, Sphinx chat. Um, so I think for some groups to join a Sphinx chat network, there's an entry fee, right? And yep. it can be as little as somebody wants or as big as somebody wants. So 5,000 sats, 10,000 sats, whatever the number that uh, the platform chooses to, uh, to charge. Um, but... Uh, if you're found to be uh, trolling, fake posting, going against whatever terms that the group has set, uh, they kick you out and you lose that that entrance fee. Uh, I think that makes a lot more sense for smaller communities. And I think that would actually do very well to combat. I mean, the dollar ranges for how the how much the group could charge, I guess, would vary. But I don't mind that that aspect of it. I Me think either. it makes a lot of sense. Me too. And I, yeah. and I yeah, and I think like. I've taken a look at Sphinx chat a bit. I'm a part of one, <laughs> so I don't think it's mainstream yet, but from what there's a stark difference between that and Telegram, where Telegram I find basically unusable at this point, where Sphinx chat, because they have that entrance fee and there's the incentive that the person might actually lose the deposit to join the group. I think that makes sense. Um, not sure how that would apply to like an overall social media network, but I think the concept makes a lot of sense. Right on. Yeah. So what, what, what is it about communication that made you fall in love with it and do a master's in it? I think comms is one of like the wider uh, fields you can actually get into in terms of different aspects it touches. Um, 
I started off my studies uh, in computer science, but then I think I quickly realized that. <laughs> yeah, <Both laughs> and we may have had different, yeah, different thoughts on it. But I love computer science, but I realized when I started to study it, um, the passion went away, um, and I much more enjoyed it as a hobby rather than as something I need to study for every awesome. single day. I like that. Um, yeah, which is why I enjoyed comms. Comms is very generic. Um, it gives you a lot of opportunity to figure out how you want comms to be applied. There's two different fields, at least at U Ottawa, which one of them is organizational, which I find is the more boring one. Uh, so like HR, how government structures work. And then there's like the media side, which is much more open. Um, but I think comms is one of the, the fields that gives you the most opportunity to make what you will of it. Um, I guess best example is that you know, I wrote 120 pages on Bitcoin in a comms paper <laughs> and it was accepted. <laughs> and I found true. <laughs> is this, is this available for public view? Yeah, it's on the, uh, it's on the Uottawa library website. I can send it to you afterwards. Yeah, for sure. Yes. We will put it in the show notes so that anybody who wants to read it can, what, like, what was it about just Bitcoin in general or what specifically? It was just social media, how that could work on top of the Lightning Network. And most of it was identifying, like I said, like the, the old platform that already exists. Um, I had to do kind of a case study and explain how the field currently looks and then try to prove a point how the Lightning Network would solve all of the areas where the other platforms failed. Luckily, there was a lot of platforms that failed, um, most, most of them in terms of uh, decentralized social media. So, I mean, the content was there to be written about. Uh, so it was really interesting to see the pros and cons and getting get into the drama, really, with, uh, like you said, Steemit had a lot of drama with uh, Justin's son and the takeover and then the transition to, uh, to Hive. Those little aspects I find are really interesting to take a look at. Wait, okay. Can I interject here and ask totally. about this whole Justin Sun thing? Because I, I don't think I was aware of what happened. You, you're definitely more <laughs> equipped to to speak on it than I know the story. I know the some of the details, but it sounds like you did your whole yeah. mess. So go for it. Not a whole mess. So I forget. I do. Yeah, I do forget the specifics of it. But I think it just it's such the perfect illustration of like what can go wrong with governance and a decentralized uh, service. So from what I understand. Uh, Justin Sun bought the majority holding of the Steemit coin, which in terms of governance and voting on proposals, uh, he held the majority share in order to change the protocol, change whatever he wanted. And I think he ended up making such an unpopular change just because he was able to buy up most of the supply of it and the majority share. Um, so he proposed a very unpopular change with the community based off his voting rights and the fact that you could basically do whatever you wanted. Uh, and the community was so unhappy with the change that they split from Steemit and became Hive. Uh, so split off from Steemit, Justin Sun, and basically replaced it with the same thing, but a different name, different coin. But I think it's the perfect example of like, decentralization is great until it's not. And <laughs> one of the things that can go wrong when you create your own blockchain network with a bunch of you know features that nobody asks about is that kind of thing can happen, but if you build it on you know the largest network, the most secure network, Bitcoin network running on top of Lightning, it can work, and you won't have to to deal with that kind of strange governance and the uh, the rigging of votes that can happen from that. So I guess that's the higher level drama of it, but a really interesting case study because 
basically what can go wrong uh, happen. So <laughs> I just want to add a couple of data points on Justin's son. He's uh, uh, if you know, Jack Mao from Alibaba, he's kind of like a Peter Thiel figure. Um, but for China, he's got this fellowship of sorts where he like brings young entrepreneurs into the ring. Justin's son was one of them. And then Justin went on to found Tron um, or he inherited Tron. I'm not sure if he built it from the ground up, but <laughs> Tron, Tron is his. And then he went off and did a, bun- did a bunch of different entrepreneurial things. But yeah, that's just like who Justice Sun is for those of our listeners who are wondering. But, but it really just sounds like we need to use decentralized and double quotes because <laughs> yes. it, if it was truly decentralized, then there really wouldn't, this would not have been possible if, you know, if we can all agree on the definition of true, de- true decentralization, or I don't even know how you can get true decentralization if, if proper decentralization is in place. So that's right. that's I think that goes more into the the whole governance aspect of it and the whole like um uh like what is the majority of um oh sorry what I'm trying to say is pre mine um and right. I think that that also at least this this incentivizes a lot of people from investing in any sort of cryptocurrency if they know what to look for if they know what to look for that's that's the yeah. star the asterisk <laughs> and the underline that is the asterisk of it. Eh? <laughs> Yeah, if they know what to look for. Um, but that's a really good point, though. I And I think many people, when they get onboarded to these platforms, don't understand. They, they see, and, and, and decentralization is used more as a buzzword, um, yes. which was so one of the things that, right, so is blockchain, uh, which was one of the things I was worried about was the thesis being more of, you know, a buzzwordy, trying to jump on that bandwagon. But the more I looked at these platforms, it is used as a buzzword, decentralization, stuff like that. But the more you dig into it, like uh, like you folks have, um, the more you realize it's actually in quotations and it's not really. <laughs> right on. So what roped you back into working on Bitcoin? You know, what about the Lightning Network sort of um, drove you back to working on Bitcoin? Um, so to be fair, I don't work specifically on development for Bitcoin, I'm still very much an enthusiast. Um, I'll run my own node. Uh, I'll do all of that fun stuff. But uh, my current job as uh, That's working for Bitcoin. As far as yeah, sure, through, yeah. It's if a, you're talking right, about, tweeting about it, running a node, like you're employed by Bitcoin. If you if you hold it, right. you're part of its marketing department. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, but, you know, in my current role as the uh, director of digital strategy, I, I I think there's not that much uh, Bitcoin conversations that happen, even though I will try to find, you know, some aspects that we could potentially bring it in. Um, but I'll never force it um, because that's when I think we get into like the very buzzword projects that uh, back in the day of uh, <laughs> different projects that came forth that didn't really need a blockchain. And I think Andreas Antonopoulos explained it right, where he kind of mentioned, um, I think he said, uh, you don't need Bitcoin. You honestly sometimes just need a database. <laughs> I think that was very true. And in, in a lot of circumstances where a simple SQL database would have sufficed where all these companies try to just integrate the blockchain where it doesn't really make sense. I think we're past that now, though. Uh, like you mentioned, like now we're, or maybe in some ways, like it's it's a lot less buzzy than it was, I think, yeah. in 2017. 
In um, some ways we are, and in other ways we are still in the thick of it. I think that it comes and goes in waves yeah. because it depends on where you are and what industry, where in some industries it's still a buzzword and some industries are past it right now. But I, like I think that the, the wave is still yet to calm down and people are yet to realize that, okay, blockchain is really not something that is needed by all industries. Yeah, I think the... Uh... Once I'll be completely satisfied with like hitting the mainstream, I think is when people use the blockchain without actually knowing we're using it. Yep. Um, I, I, I think that'll be the big one. And I know we're taking steps towards the UI changes, making things more user-friendly. I think in terms of running your own node, uh, I'm sure you know of Umbrel, which yep. is- yes. We have one. That's build your own we're... node. Yeah. Right, yeah. Now you can build your own and they have, uh, I think they just released one where it's an all-in-one box. So yeah. you ship it to you, plug it in, and you're done. But because of their app store and you're able to install Tor, you're able to install all these different applications, that's the right step. But it's still not something that you know my mom or my parents will be able to uh, understand or honestly even care about. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I guess is something we need to think about. doesn't matter to a lot of people. How deeply have you do uh, like dove into like Blue Wallet, for example, is a custodial lightning wallet, right? And so you really kind of only need one like Bitcoin champion in every family or every neighborhood that leads the charge and like they're the one that sets up the node and then they can everyone can have their lightning wallet hosted on on theirs if they trust them or whatever. Um, but the, like then you're bringing trust back into the equation in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm wondering what is the right balance there? And uh, is, is that the direction you see things going? Like one person in a community being the node runner and like kind of being a pseudo bank for, for people? <laughs> I love that. And I, I love that you mentioned Blue Wallet. It's actually the one wallet that I use an example with my family or my friends when oh, I want to show yeah. them the Lightning Network. I think it's actually the most user-friendly one. Uh, the one that makes visually the, the most sense. Very few buttons, you know, scan the QR code, send. Um, the one example I always use that I think showcases it pretty well is Polo's chicken feed or Polo's feed, which is somebody who set up a chicken coop uh, in a different country. I forget where it was, but uh, it's a live camera feed of their chickens. And there's a QR code and you pay the invoice of like five cents in sats, very low amount. And then in real time, you can see the food dispensed for the chickens and then the chickens all run and eat the food. That's always the first example I use with my friends and family, and especially with Blue Wallet. I think that is usually the best example to use. But I think to your point on what the happy medium is, right now, I think that is the happy medium, having right. one person. And I think a lot of Bitcoin OGs will say you always want to use non-custodial wallets, right? Which makes sense for your main stash. But I honestly think that custodial wallets is where the future is for the mainstream to be able to use. I do, uh, we I agree. Just saw, yeah, we just saw recently announced like there's a, a bank in the US that, you know, will now take custody of Bitcoin. So I, as much as that goes against the main purpose of Bitcoin, I think that's probably how it's going to go into the mainstream is having custodial access. So something like Blue Wallet, very user-friendly where nobody needs to remember 12 or 24 words. Easy for us to know how that works, to be honest, but you go on Reddit, you go on these forums and mistakes happen every single day where people end up losing their funds, which um, 
is not really how you get into the mainstream, I find. So I think the happy median in the future will be the custodial, very user-friendly walkthrough experiences where the user actually doesn't have too much control. The user doesn't actually know they're using the Lightning Network. Um, but I mean, for us enthusiasts and people who <laughs> have more fun and play around with the tech, uh, we'll remain with like the non-custodial side and be able to secure our own. But for the layman's, I, I think definitely the, the future is on the custodial side. I am curious to see how this goes because as I guess uh, people that are in their 20s and 30s migrate onto using custodial solutions to get introduced to Bitcoin, the current population that is between, I guess, zero and 20, uh, what is their introduction to to custodial services versus it, like, I wonder what that's going to be like, because I mean, I think that the current um, population between the ages of eight and 15 are so used to living in a virtual world and looking in virtual economies and having their own virtual dollars for their game, that if they discover there's a way for them to own their own money, uh, instead of relying on a third party, they might go for it. And it'd be, I'm, It'd be very interesting to see how that, how the custodianship versus non-custodianship phases out and in, um, or works together in tandem as as the population grows or the age of the current generation grows. That's a really good point. Yeah, actually, I haven't thought of that, but I think it is important to actually think about um, the generational divide between how other people will actually start being raised onto the digital economy and on the blockchain compared to trying to educate the older generation now on how to use it. Potentially the older generation now will be leave them on the custodial side or leave them dealing yeah. with Bitcoin as a store value of their bank. But as you mentioned, the younger generation, I mean, probably my first, the first video game I played that taught me about economics was RuneScape back in the day. Yeah, um, RuneScape. Oh, RuneScape? RuneScape, R-U-N-E-scape. Yeah, -E why, why was that? Uh, it was this old web-based, I mean, it sounds like you played it. <laughs> I didn't play it. I didn't play very much of it, but- uh, But like, like, how did it teach you about economics? Because you got to go mine for gold and it takes time to do that. And then you like go and get various resources. You got to chop wood, get some stone, bring it back, like make bricks, turn some stuff into it, like your house. And yeah. And it's, it was very like much peer to peer as well. So you're able yeah. to trade with other players and the game itself had an economy where uh, there was a finite amount of specific items. So the, the economics of it actually played a role where the prices would start going up and you'd be able to invest and trade with other players. But to your point on like different generations, I think imagine now the younger generation getting raised on all these new digital games. And I think now we're seeing uh, games that actually integrate with uh, Bitcoin itself, right? Yeah. So I can imagine all these games that would be available down the line for the newer generation and being able to, let's say they're playing a video game, they have gold in the video game, but being able to withdraw it on a QR code to your phone and being able to hold it you know, on your actual phone, I think would be a very cool concept. And it's not something we had, uh, because obviously in 2007, the games were, <laughs> were centralized and it didn't exist. Um, but well, I, I, I think yeah, it'll build on them. Didn't you play, it was Half-Life and Linden Dollars. Uh, Rugakshi showed me a tweet of yours, I think. <laughs> yeah. And like that's, and we're, we're seeing an echo of that play out right now with the whole metaverse, right? You're a hundred, I think you're a hundred percent right with a lot of these 
uh, kids and, and the, the generation before us, which makes me sound so damn old, um, are like doing these play to earn games. They, they get an NFT, they sell it for 50 bucks. They realize that they've now got 50 bucks worth of Ethereum. They can do whatever they want with that, really trade it for Bitcoin or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like the way that they're going to get in and they're just naturally going to be exposed to it. It's like, yeah, of course, non-custodial, custodial, like what's the what are you gonna say not only that but it also seems like they're used to the concept of multiple currencies right like our grandparents and parents <laughs> grew up with the concept of one, one. currency based yeah. on the country that you're born and raised in and you know right now we're trying to convince the older generation i say in quotes again that multiple currencies can exist but that isn't something that needs to be a conversation at all with the generation that's coming after right. us because they're already used to it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I remember like you made reference to uh, uh, Second Life, Linden Dollars. I said half I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I mean, again, like those were the days where there was no trustworthy Canadian exchange. Um, back in the yeah. day, it was uh, BTCE, which was like based in the Ukraine or something. Very sketchy. Um, so the only way to actually use your Canadian dollars without having it to wire it to the Ukraine was to buy Linden dollars in Second Life. And then for some reason, there was this website that would convert your virtual Linden dollars, Second Life currency. I've never played the game, so I wasn't buying real estate in Second uh. Life, but they, were, but they would convert your Linden dollars into Bitcoin, which then you could withdraw from the website. Um, so an interesting concept, but that's actually how difficult it was back in the day to find a legitimate way to use PayPal or to use your Canadian bank account. If you really didn't want to wire it to some of these weird exchanges, which I never really wanted to. Um, but of course, like once you actually had your Bitcoin, you're free to go wherever you want, which I ended up going to BTCE, right. To, to trade there. But, uh, it was really a struggle to get your Canadian dollars really to do anything back then. So uh, it's fun to see like where we've reached now. And I think at least in Canada, we're, we're a lot ahead of the United States in terms of the industry and the ETF approvals. And in a lot the of one ways. I use now, yep. yeah, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I know like there, there is a crackdown in Ontario, at least with uh, security regulations, but we do have a lot of good financial companies with Bitcoin, like ShakePay is very good. ShakePay is um, awesome. Yeah. yeah. So like Montreal-based, top-notch people. Coming up um, with a crypto credit card. Bitcoin credit <laughs> yeah. card. Oh, yeah. no, wait. Can you... Is the Ethereum available on that too? I don't remember. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, so. The, that's the only two though. Um, yeah, so I yeah. remember speaking to uh, to the CEO and that's Mark. the question Jean, he gets the most. Jean, Jean Amion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said Mark. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's the question they get the most is like, oh, when are you gonna release like 20 different coins where like people can trade? And I mean yeah. they're pretty strict on like having two and like that's it. It's that's awesome, awesome though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's actually our go-to uh, exchange that we recommend to a lot of beginners in Canada because it's so easy to e-transfer to them. And um it helps with the distraction of going and checking out the top 10 coins or the top trending coin, especially if someone yeah. is new. Or this latest coin that just pumped like 350%. Meanwhile, your Bitcoin's going up 2%. And it's, <laughs> it's like, a big distraction. Yeah. It's a huge distraction. Yeah. And um, I mean, like just in terms of development for them, um, I think it makes a lot more sense for them just to focus on on two rather than totally. try to develop and maintain, you know, the hundreds and <laughs> whatever else exists. 
For sure. So I actually wanted to ask, but you know, aside from Linden dollars, what other methods did you use to procure Bitcoin back in the day? Back in the day being seven years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it does feel like it dates me. Eh? Um, so I remember Linden dollars was one. Um, there would also be uh, <laughs> this. This one did not age well, but uh, Quadriga. <laughs> so they would have. Uh, I think this was a bit after the the second life Linden dollars, but they would have some really weird like cash drop offs where you'd send your cash, yeah, flip it by mail, and they would credit your account with how much cash you sent them. Yeah, I remember that. Looking back at it, really strange, right? I never <laughs> did just, that. Like, did you, did you stuff do that? an envelope with cash? I never did. Um, no, me neither. That was, but I remember like that was one of the ways that a lot of Canadians back in the day did it. And looking back, doesn't really make a lot of sense, but. I mean, that's a lot. That's what a lot of people did. Um, probably like after that, um, the industry was a lot better. So local Bitcoin was really good in uh, 2015, 2016, 2014 kind of times. Uh, so a lot of like local meetups to buy, which is actually great at the beginning of, uh, you know, when the community was growing and get to meet a lot of new people and see what what people's thoughts on it was. And I think, like I mentioned at the beginning, it was always more interesting. Uh, getting to know those people because the we're never really talking about the price of, of the asset. And it was more so just the fascination of it, the technology behind it. Uh, Segwit, you know, was a conversation back then. And I think now on the technical side, you know, we have taproot different like technological improvements. So I think like if the conversation was like it was back then, people would be talking about taproot. People wouldn't really be talking about the, uh, the milestones we're reaching in price, but not a not a bad past few days uh, in that case, but <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Oh man, just uh, you recounting the kind of conversations that took place in meetups just seven, six, seven years ago, and seeing how much has changed since then. I uh, I really wonder what kind of conversations we're going to be having five years from now. Because it almost yeah. feels like this is going to be back in the day or part of the back in the day kind of conversations. And uh, what, what are we at? Like in terms when of- When El Salvador made when, it legal tender, for example, like back in the day when- the first Right, back country, in the day when they made it legal tender. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be for sure the conversation. <laughs> or uh, back in the day when, you know, for four days, uh, the citizen protested uh, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the introduction of the Bitcoin law. And then that went away when they started to see- uh, the savings of remittance payments and how much they can save sending back and forth between countries. Or suddenly their $30 in Bitcoin is worth, you know, $35 now. And, you know, <laughs> definitely the conversation is going to shift, but it ages you quickly, right? Like the, it, it wasn't that long ago, but it, it really makes you think about how quickly things move. I would have never guessed that, uh, what year are we? 2021. Like this is the year where a country makes it legal tender. Like that's just insane. Where it's so early. You, I, I had no it's idea. So early. I was not expecting. We this skipped. A, yeah, we skipped a few steps. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> if you had to ask me, like January when this was coming, I'd say 2025 at the at the earliest, at the very earliest. Yeah, and <laughs> I get a lot of people thinking that because of my role at Parliament, I have some kind of like insider info as to like when Canada's going to make it legal tender. <laughs> and I always say, honestly, I have no clue, but... Uh, well, Tristan, we when is Canada ahead. going to make it legal tender? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can hear it here uh, first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, breaking news. 
Um, I mean, obviously, like we're way down the line um, in terms of like even thinking about it. But uh, I, I think we're in we're in good steps too with what's happening with uh, with the industry in Canada. It's actually surprising that the states is slightly slower in uh, in approving an ETF or even uh, starting to open business for the the new fintech companies that are trying to exist. But even even that being said, though, like the states as a whole, I would characterize as being behind. But then you've got a pocket like Wyoming that is just they're just nailing it at or every Texas. corner. Yeah, or with like all of their uh, like mining infrastructure that that was just migrated to Texas. It's like that's that's amazing little pockets, and I hope to see those as use cases. Like America is full of super intelligent people; it just is. And the the Bitcoiners that are there, they're going to hone in on this. They're going to case study it. They're going to throw the data all over it. They're going to say, "Look at all of these great things that." I mean, I'm speculating, of course. It could just turn out to be a disaster, but uh, well, yeah, I'm optimistic. <laughs> I guess besides besides the, the states and Canada, have you personally, Tristan, looked into other countries that are adopting it at, um, at a fairly decent pace or even taking a look at it seriously? Yeah, that's, again, like really good question because it was a section in my thesis where I took a look at... Uh, specifically Twitter activities. So geographic regions where people were talking about Lightning Network a few years ago, were talking more about Bitcoin. And one of the conclusions from the thesis was, surprisingly to me, to be honest, is a lot of the regions talking about Bitcoin are developing countries. Yes. Um, but the conversation within those when we did a content analysis was less so about the price of the asset and more so about the fundamentals in regards to like why this is a necessity. So um, the one that was not developing, but that was interesting was like Germany, for instance, which um, again, I'm not a historian, so it was difficult for me to explain, but because of like the history with uh, financial surveillance and, and how there was potentially control of the currency and stuff like that, there was more of an interest in Bitcoin because of that. And that was a lot of the conversation that happened. Um, but majorly the, the countries that had an interest in Bitcoin and the blockchain and the second layer were developing countries, but they're not talking about it in terms of asset prices. They're just talking about it in terms of remittance payments or the, the, the fundamentals behind it, the store of value. So that was really interesting because it puts into perspective that um, while I think us, you know, living in Canada or folks living in the States probably think about it more as like, the price of the asset or the store value. It's yeah. not the main selling point and it's not the main feature for a lot, a lot of different people. Um, I think it benefits a lot of other people in terms of how the protocol works rather than um, the, the store value aspect, for example. So I think that was really interesting. Yeah, well, I think those reasons specifically are going to help developing countries develop a lot faster <laughs> because they will right. it will help with economic growth way better and way more than, I guess, well, expanding your balance sheet will with being yeah. able to print more money. It's a, it's a monetary skip technology uh, in that sense. And I'm wondering if you included anything on Nigeria in your studies, um, like specifically that country. Yeah, uh, they're mentioned in the thesis. Uh, this was a few years ago, so I'm trying to think specifically of what about them. But I remember uh, mentioning that actually Nigeria has a high rate of mobile usage. So mm. yeah. uh, everyone there has cell phones, um, yeah. which was surprising to me, to be honest. Um, but 
uh, a lot of people in Nigeria were using like Western Union to be able to transfer money back and forth. Um, and I remember seeing a few documentaries in El Salvador of what the process of using Western Union is. Um, I've never, I've been fortunate, so I don't have to use it. Um, I don't know like if, if you've ever used it, but just watching the documentary and seeing like how time consuming the process is, how it literally takes up your whole day to go to a, a take a bus and go to a station, get your money transferred. Um, but Nigeria was interesting because there's a high level of education with mobile telephones. Um, so they're already used to kind of like being able to transact via SMS and being able to send money that way. Um, so utilizing, there wasn't a, a big emphasis on the Lightning Network for them, um, but a familiarity for sure on blockchain and a pretty high level of education on how it actually works, um, which was interesting. So I think I concluded with the overview of the geographic regions was the countries who needed the most are the ones who are actually the most educated on it and understand how it works and how it can benefit them. But there's a big uh, disparity between what value we see from it in developed nations compared to like how others see it. So the value is different on, on both perspectives. Even with some developing nations, though, if uh, government inter intervention or intervention in or not intervention, but like looking at it in a different light than simple, simply monetary um, evolution. I think that that really is harming them more than it is going to benefit them in the longer run. For example, India, someone recently just told me that they passed a, a law where I think it was in the last week or so, but don't quote me on this. They essentially said that um, if you as an Indian citizen are transferring Bitcoin from yourself to anybody else that is considered as trading and trading in India is considered illegal. So, <laughs> so it's essentially a roundabout way of saying that doing anything with crypto is illegal if you're going to do it on an Indian exchange or with Indian rupees. Um, but knowing people in India, because I, I grew up in India, I was there for 19 years. And I do actually remember when I was probably six or seven, um, my dad got paid by a, by a Western union and we would have to go there after he was done working. And it would, you'd need to have a supervisor there in order to sign off on the, the Western union slip. So if he wasn't there, you'd have to wait around. And then when he came over, you needed to take your passport and other sorts of identifying information. And even after you got this slip of paper, which had this sort of carbon copy thing, you had to take it to the bank the next day because it was very late to do it that day and in order for that money to be available. It's a really long process. Anyway, coming back to the whole um, point of the regulations changing in India, I really wonder how, how that's going to impact them um, in the future because it, it almost seems like it's slowing them down rather than them ramping up to be in line with another monetary solution to conduct trade. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's probably like the biggest pain point we have right now, even in Canada, to be honest, is like the tax implications of, of how <laughs> the, the currency is considered. I mean, we just spoke about ShakePay and then the new uh, debit card that's coming. Um, and I can even like wrap my head around like logistically how the tax implications that would happen. You get rewarded in Bitcoin, but uh, that would be taxable. And then yep. if I want to use it, that's another taxable event. So I think like that is probably the biggest disconnect we have now is just tax regulations and what it's being considered, which is why like El Salvador is considered the holy grail right now, where I love to think about how 
I'm not going to the conference. I really wish I was, <laughs> but we're going at the go. adopting Bitcoin summit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. We're going to go. If you, if you can, we're going to be there. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm yeah. super jealous. I mean, I, it might be a spur of the moment, last minute thing where I decide to go. <laughs> um, you have to I mean, pay like, for it is Burton lightning. Yeah. That's well. the only way. Right. That's what I saw on the website. It's the yeah. only way to pay. And there is something just completely fascinating and, and worthwhile to be able to go there and transact and not necessarily have to worry about each transaction is being taxed and you have to file it. And it actually can be used as a currency, which is what we talked about in you know 2013 when the conversations were happening. Um, so I, I, I think that's the biggest disconnect we have now, like you're mentioning in India, which I think is, is probably more extreme and, and more troublesome than it is here in Canada. But yeah. yeah. Well, I guess to give it to India and any other country that is kind of flip-flopping on what to do with Bitcoin, they're taking some sort of action, which means that it is in on their books and it is <laughs> on their agenda to deal with. Um, and yeah. I guess the fact that they've made so many decisions just mean that they're evolving in their own Bitcoin journey, which, you right. know, I think for every Bitcoiner, there, there's been some points where you you. I don't know. I'm speaking for the whole, but there's some points in time where you're like, oh my gosh, is this thing really working? Or am I just falling for a ridiculous experiment that if it, you know, is, is doomed to fail, but you know, whatever those thoughts come and go. <laughs> I did. It, it makes me think about a conversation I had during my, when I was writing my thesis, I met with the director of like FinTech for the bank of Canada, just to think, talk about, they were developing the central bank digital currency project. Um, I wanted to talk about micropayments on Lightning Network and how the differences could happen with that. My main point was that right now on the internet, we don't really have the native currency, I think, as, as Jack Dorsey at, at Twitter kind of talks about it. But uh, micropayments aren't really a thing on, on the internet right now, where if I want to read an article and during the election campaign, this was a big one where all these political articles are coming out, I would love to read them. But you open the article and you know, it says $4.99 or $6.99, get the monthly subscription. I, it doesn't matter how much money I have. I could be the, you know, a trillionaire. I don't feel like paying a monthly subscription, you know, for, for some of these news outlets, but put a QR code on it and charge me 25 cents for that one individual article. I'll grab my phone, I'll scan it and open up the article for me. I would love to do that. But because I think the Visa network can transact with like these very small micropayments and, you know, it would actually would be cumbersome to try to transact with that. Um, it's not a thing. Micropayments aren't a thing right now, which I think is probably one of the biggest values that the Lightning network can bring uh, to the internet itself is just being able to have very small micropayments. Uh, Are you aware from like of what? Y'all's. Yeah. So the, where it unlocks like specific articles. Yeah. It's exactly yeah, what you're talking it, about. It, like you cost yeah. a dollar to post and then you charge whatever you like. And uh, yeah. And then people just like, whatever it is, 45 cents, 25 cents. Can that be applied to financial times and New York times and all of these established? I don't see networks? any reason why not. No, I, no, no, I, like, I don't. I'm asking a question of if you can subscribe to financial times through this thing. Cause I don't know. What no, it is. no, this no. is just like a social media site. That's like, here's uh, one post okay. you go into it. It's pay gated, and, but it's not pay gated with like a 1099 per month subscription. It's right. pay gated with a 25 <laughs> one time fee. And, and, and that's the problem with y'all's is that 
it's these random users that because you can only see the title of the article, it'll be like my top five like uh, cryptocurrencies, and then you can buy it for twenty cents to unlock it. Well, the, there's no value there, uh, at least for me. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. you know, like if if it's like a Reddit kind of thing, you know, I'm not gonna be paying ten cents to open a Reddit or a, a Reddit thread or anything like that. But if they could integrate something like that for the New York Times or some of the, like the Canadian publishers, I think we would see a large acceptance. Maybe not right now because the Lightning Network it, it's still very uh, unuser friendly. But eventually down the line, when you mentioned the newer generation comes in, I think that'll be the norm where people will pay little micro payments of you know ten cents, scan the QR code, read the article without actually being embedded to that the large monthly subscription. And that's what he had mentioned too, if like the Canadian central bank digital currency. I think that's the vision um, that they had and they found interest in the micropayments. Uh, I'm not 100% set on the success of that project. Um, Me neither. <laughs> but I mean, they're working hard on it, so I, we'll see. Yeah, Tristan, you said your generation. Did you mean to say your <laughs> generation? Um. Yeah, I'm uh I'm 20 I just turned 26. Um, yes, on September 25th I saw on your Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I also just turned 26. We're the same age. <laughs> okay, so we're the same. What generation are we? Millennials? I think oh, so. Oh gosh, I always forget these labels. I think yeah. we're millennials and you're at the cutoff, right? 1995. We're both 1995. Yeah, 1995. What's the one before millennials because I think it's Gen X or Gen Z or something like that? Before yeah, yeah, I think Gen X is before millennials. So that's me. You're, you're just two years. <laughs> I know, but the cutoff is 1995. So I'm 93 and yeah. you're 95. Welcome to the Go Full Crypto <laughs> podcast where we're discussing yeah. the generations. Generation differences. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Mm, yes. The, I, so did you mean to say the generation older than us? The generation older than us, yeah. Than all, so, than all of us. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> how was your thesis received by your academic community? Um, not just in comms and like its related fields, but like who showed up for your thesis defense? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's like, I don't know, like um, who showed up? Who, who was interested it, yeah. in coming? Yeah, it, that is a good question just because um, I think all these comms theorists did have an interest because they really didn't know what I was talking about. Um, right. So there was actually like some people who showed up that had an interest or some people who emailed and wanted to read it um, just because they haven't seen anything like that applied to comms. Generally, like people who do a thesis in comms talk about theories that have been around for, you know, 50 years or, or even longer. Um, but the actual defense, I mean, was very easy, if I'm being honest, um, <laughs> because uh, the committee couldn't ask questions regarding <laughs> Bitcoin or blockchain. <laughs> right. So a lot wow. of the questions were about methodology, like why did I use you know, this kind of quantitative stat compared to this other one? Or a lot of questions about philosophy, like what made me want to do uh, blockchain or what made me want to do Bitcoin. So a lot of like questions that they were comfortable asking, but it was different in comms, which is why it's kind of an interesting question because they didn't have the knowledge of the actual network or the protocol or how it really works. So the questions weren't really in depth, but there was a definite interest in 
kind of the benefits of a decentralized social media network. And I, I think I really put forward the need of it. So in parts of the thesis, I talk about uh, all of the data breaches that happen, the Cambridge Analytica's and things that everyone knows, but kind of wrap it in something that makes it more presentable in regards yeah. to why we need a decentralized social media. So that's what they enjoyed most. Um, but the actual defense and the questions were relatively straightforward just because it's uh, it's it's not on their uh, it's not in their playing field and they're like highly intelligent people when it comes to theory but i think blockchain is just so new that technical questions regarding that you know weren't there <laughs> so did you lay it out for them is like you you're standing at the front of the room you're like okay we're gonna start here's blockchain here's bitcoin like what was the order of things that you you kind of oh, yeah. Did? yeah so we did uh we went way back so i explained how back in the day and this is like before I was born, or maybe not, maybe a bit before I was born. But back in the day, the, in, the internet was actually more decentralized, where people were hosting their own web servers, yeah. uh, their own email servers, there's a lot of like enthusiasts kind of doing their own thing. So it actually was back in the day decentralized, and even like search engines uh, were much more decentralized. So I did a pie chart of like, these are the search engines that existed. You know, you had Yahoo of this share, you had like world.com that had like 20%. We don't even know what these are anymore but there was you know a, a large section of like different search engines that people could use and the none none actually like dominated in terms of what people were using so i made sure I, I discussed what the internet was back then and then progressively went through uh over time you know there was more centralization that came into effect where google started to dominate uh the search engines yeah comes <laughs> some in very dramatic impact there was some very dramatic part pie charts coming yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and then i really brought it back and explained that like the internet is really just a protocol and you can build applications on top of that protocol um i think that was the main argument i had when i tried to explain what the light network could be because then I explained that, you know, Bitcoin is a protocol, but like the internet, you can build on top of it and you can have different applications on it. So that's kind of how far I brought them back. We didn't do too much of a history lesson. Um, I'm not that, <laughs> I'm also not an internet historian. So it was hard for me too, to kind of wrap my head around how things used to be. Um, but the way I sold it was more so the golden age of, of the internet was potentially when people were hosting their own web servers and, uh, you know, I like the internet now and I would probably choose the internet now compared to what it was back in the day. But it is interesting to see the differences in how people are hosting their information, right? Storing it on their own computer or choosing to host their own servers compared to, you know, utilizing the cloud and all these different things. In your research, did you come across a, a better internet of sorts? But was there ever a time where whatever protocol we're using right now to host the internet across the world, was there something better that we just didn't adopt because this current internet was already so far ahead and like, in, in, in terms of adoption? Like better than TCP, IP, and HTTPS, yeah. basically. Is but what HTTP, HTTPS came a little bit. Yeah, later. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I feel like you folks have seen uh, Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, TV I have. Show. I haven't. That's a hilarious show. It's good. Okay, that's always what I think about when somebody mentions like the better internet kind of thing, like what is possible. Um, I didn't dive into like the decentralized internet too much. Um, I was more so limited with the, the scope of the research, but right. I think like potentially like if I would do a follow-up, that's probably what I would dive into would be 
not only can you do the decentralized social media, but actually have the decentralized internet where um, people host their own domains and you can point at it without actually going through a centralized entity, all these different things, I think is a lot more interesting in terms of possibilities that can happen. But because of the scope of the research, I think I really needed to narrow it down <laughs> to like, Twitter is centralized. <laughs> we can make Twitter, but decentralized. I think like I needed to make that connection. Um, but I, I think there is, and you know, I, I'm more of a, a Bitcoin maximalist, but I probably have like 2% portfolio in Ethereum. I do think it's interesting, right? And, and there's a lot of fun stuff that's being built on there. Um, so I, I'm not in the team that, you know, just dismisses it. Um, and I think like if, if we do want to do something like that, it would probably be built on top of that, but not too familiar. I think you would be better positioned to actually talk about the, the possibilities with that, but definitely like an interesting field. I think if I would do a follow-up, it would be in regards to that. No, actually we, um, we're much closer to your portfolio allocation than, uh, the, like we're 95% plus in Bitcoin and 5%. We actually oh, don't have any, Ethereum. we're not really Ethereum people, uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we also don't discriminate. Like that's what yeah. we see a lot of and we don't really love the the toxicity um, and like the bashing of like, you're in that coin and, I, and I'm in Bitcoin. So I must be better than you. It's like, it's not like that for us. Yeah, I, 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 I'm thinking about like back in the day, it was like Bitcoin cash. And that was like the big argument was right. Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash. And I think just like what happened to that and it's kind of the position I take now is that that it'll figure itself out as yeah. it did in the past, right? So you, you look at Bitcoin cash dominance, it figured itself out and <laughs> you don't need that much toxicity in the community to, to make that point. I mean, the economics of it will make itself clear and evident. And I, 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 wanna, I think it's I wanna circle back around right? for a second and go back to like the communication, the free market communicating. Uh, that's what that is. Like the market dominance figuring itself out. I'm just wanna bring this full circle and like, yes, that is it figuring that's everyone communicating and the price of Bitcoin cash just being what it is actually kind of supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. Same thing with uh, the Satoshi vision, right? Figured yes. itself out. Um, and I think that's the perfect way to put it, right? It's, it's, it's just that the freedom of it and how, uh, how economics works and how everyone is free to, to put their money where their beliefs are. But in the end, uh, one of them will be more dominant. And um, I mean, it was always my kind of intuition that it's always going to be Bitcoin. And I still think that, um, but I, I'm definitely not like in the team where we need to be bashing or trying to persuade all these different people to, to get into the Bitcoin camp. I think the only argument that resonates a little bit is like the market dominance of Bitcoin where we could be so much more dominant if we didn't have, you know, 2000 currencies behind us. I think that's the only one that, you know, makes me think a little bit where it's like, I wonder where we would be if, you know, people only had really one coin to choose and how far much further we'd be in the industry without that segregation. But I think it's, it's uh, hypocritical to, to think that if, we're going to be in a decentralized environment and say everything should be decentralized, but then say we shouldn't have these coins or we shouldn't have that coin, um, which is why I think like the maximalist argument is a bit strange where we love decentralization. But if we do like decentralization, which we do, we should allow it to play out and let right. people decide where to put their money. Right. 
I yeah, the freedom. Coaching. Yeah, the freedom to choose as well. I think the freedom of choice is sort of taken away if someone says no, you shouldn't uh, X Y Z. Even if it is investing in a coin that we know to be something of a scam, it each person for their own choices. If they want to do it, it's their money. We can do as much as we can to say, hey, look at these three properties. Make sure that you're not putting your money into something that you you know is essentially going to swallow your investment you're never going to see it again and as long as you're prepared to do that you know whatever your money uh, the reason i actually wanted to ask you whether or not you came across um and a, a better internet of sorts when you were researching back before into uh, networks before you were born is because recently I've heard the really apt analogy of when the internet was commercialized, nobody went on to adopt this other internet. The internet is what it is right now because it was, it was like the, the snowball effect, the, it started and then it grew. And then now we're never, we're not going to go back until the internet becomes so fragile that it just is doomed to fail. And that's probably a century from now when we are connected because we have a microchip in our heads and we don't even need the internet to think. It's like peer-to-peer communication anywhere in the world because we're connected via these chips. And it's not that far-fetched. Um, it really <laughs> like, isn't, uh, I know. A future. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, whatever, that's going to be a hundred or a thousand, whatever years from now. But uh, with respect to people asking the question of, oh, like, what's the next currency that's going to what's over- the next Bitcoin? overtake Bitcoin? There cannot be a next Bitcoin because Bitcoin is Bitcoin, period. But uh, I found this analogy really helpful to start using is, okay, what's the next Internet? If you want to talk about what's the next Bitcoin, what's the next Internet and and, and all of that. So when, when people ask you a question on, okay, what do you? what is the next Bitcoin interest and what sort of cryptocurrency should I invest in? What is your answer usually? <laughs> um, interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't really give advice with, uh, with other cryptocurrencies. Uh, I usually just stay like my advice is always, you know, just dollar cost average and go live your life. Um, and I think <laughs> that that's probably like, honestly, that's probably like what I've learned in the last like seven years or so is Back in 2013, 2014, I was like addicted to the price, you know, yeah. 300 and then it went up to 400 and it consumed you. And I think like the biggest difference to where I'm at now compared to where I was before is the, you know, it's going to succeed and you know where it's going. And it's just a matter of time before it gets there, which is nice because it allows you to, to free your mind a little bit and focus more on the technical side and the developments and the day-to-day fluctuations don't really matter as much and you're not consumed by it, which is interesting because I know like financially, I'm much more uh, heavily tied to it now than I was back in the day. But in terms of like psychology, how you think about it, really not tied at all. Um, It's, you know, it's inevitable. So I think like that's the advice I usually give to people. Like I'm very far from a financial advisor, not great with that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I usually say like just dollar cost average into Bitcoin. If you want to take a look at Ethereum, go ahead. If, you know, if you think you have a very interesting thesis for a different coin, go ahead. You know, that's the freedom of the market. Not necessarily my advice, but that's, that's the industry and that's the fun of it. Um, so my advice is always, there isn't really necessarily going to be a next Bitcoin. It's going to be, what's the next thing being built on Bitcoin? That's going to be more so the question, right? Um, I think with uh, the upcoming upgrades, you know, we might have a bit of smart contracts, but there's a lot of interesting things that I think 
will be built on Bitcoin. I think we didn't really tap into that yet. Ethereum is much more than playground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, fun intended. <laughs> um, but I, I think the question is, is more so just, there's no next Bitcoin. It, it's Bitcoin. And like you said, it has a snowball effect and it has a network effect. So the question is more so, when will you get in? You know, when will you start chipping in? But also, when is the next big thing going to be built on Bitcoin? When's the next killer application? And I think one of the killer applications for El Salvador was remittance payments. That's a killer app for them built on yeah. top of Bitcoin. And I think, you know, we'll discover some future killer features that is more relevant to us down the line, um, potentially social media, that kind of stuff for us. But, you know, there's different applications. I think that's more so the question is just what is going to be built on top of it next rather than like what is the next potential investment, right? Right. I love that answer. And I really heavily resonate with it too, because I remember when I got and I was also addicted to the price. I don't think it's something that you can escape because that essentially, you know, the nature of us is so um, that we have financial freedom and financial freedom to some people looks like making more money, which, you know, completely understandable because we live in a society where you do need money to survive. Uh, once you understand Bitcoin enough, and once you've been through the, the swings of plus 40% and minus 40% in both directions, and you realize more about the philosophy and what it offers as a money, as a utility to all people of the world, that's when you sort of reach your Zen moment of, okay, this is Bitcoin, I own it, period. Whatever happens, whatever the market decides it needs to be traded at is what the market is deciding. And I don't necessarily need to be involved with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And, and that's super freeing in a way um, where yeah. like the focus now is maybe more on the technology side. But you folks are, are doing like living on Bitcoin, right? You're trying to utilize it in, in your daily transactions or something like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we converted all of our money into Bitcoin for our person from our personal savings last August, and then we converted. We were already heavily in there before it, but not yeah, not full into not it. Not fully. There was good just, timing. Yeah. Oh, oh, I know. Really good timing. It was essentially like when it was. Right around the time when Michael Saylor was doing his 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 whole yeah, like Tahini's restaurant was taking the them they converted their cash reserves right. Bitcoin. Michael Saylor happened, and I'm reading about Bitcoin, and I look at my bank account and thinking, why do I have this money? Well, how here? do I have dollars? Why is I don't need this here? And it it was on, honestly like um um uh, like a panic. I was in a panic, and I was like, okay, Keegan, like, well, I just keep whatever we need to pay for rent in here, and then move everything into Bitcoin. So we did. And it turned out to be really uh, advantageous for us in terms of at least the price of Bitcoin because it was a couple months before the bull run. Uh, but yeah, we've we're in we're taking advantage of the tools that are currently built inside the cryptocurrency industry to leverage the fact that we have Bitcoin um, to live our daily lives and not be impacted by the volatility very much, which is very convenient for us since Bitcoin is essentially our money. And a lot of the time we get asked the question, and I'm sure it's true for El Salvador, I, I'm really curious to see how they're solving this problem. But the fact that well, Bitcoin was traded at 54,000 Canadian dollars on the last day of September, and now it's at 68 or 69,000 Canadian dollars, and it's only been seven days. So how how do you buy groceries with that sort of volatility? How do you you know reconcile with the fact that yesterday you paid more for your coffee than you will today? And so yeah. I, I wonder if you've thought about this and you have 
some you've conceptualized it in some way to make do with the volatility, especially if Bitcoin is your money. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess my uh, <laughs> I've, you're definitely like more advanced than I am. Um, I think like it's it's definitely like where I want to start heading is 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 converting more. But I think a lot of the things I do is still tied to like legacy finance. That it's yeah. more of an anxiety for me to to fully convert. But like you mentioned, like cash is probably like at an all time low. You know, you keep what you need to to, to pay your monthly bills, things like that. But um, fluctuations, I think, are interesting. I mattered. I cared a lot more about fluctuations when I had very little Bitcoin in like 2013. It, for some reason, it mattered a lot more than it does now. Um, but I think an interesting case study of like fluctuations in El Salvador, and I think Jack Maller was saying this, is when they do like remittance transfers uh, where somebody can send over the Lightning Network a payment from like, let's say, Canada to their family in El Salvador. Um, so they'll do like Canadian dollars on top of the lightning converted to Bitcoin and then into their local currency. I think because a transaction takes a second, like fluctuations actually don't matter too much. Um, but I think what you were saying was like the psychology of it's been like five days and look at the difference in price. And it's like wrapping your head around either groceries will cost a lot less <laughs> if you're in Bitcoin or suddenly, you know, like the psychology of the fluctuation is is definitely a thing when it's priced in Satoshi's or, you know, in Bitcoin. And I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Um, I'm honestly not sure if we'll get to a point where the fluctuations get a lot lower. Um, I honestly thought like back in the day when the prices was lower that we would never get this high, first of all, but that if we were at this level, that it would be pretty steady for the rest of, you know, for a couple of years, we'd go down like a little bit, but we've never really reached uh, a point where it's been stable for a long time. So I'm not sure how we deal with uh, fluctuations or if it's just like something we have to live with. And that's the differences between Bitcoin and using dollars is that, you know, fluctuations happen and whatever the price of, of the good is, is, is whatever it actually is. Um, but it's an interesting question to ask is how would people react with varying prices every single day if you actually choose to convert most of your dollars into Bitcoin and how how stressful that would be on specific days compared to potentially how less stressful it would be <laughs> when the price goes up, right? I can think of some um, specific days that were pretty stressful in the, in the last six months. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I how we solve that. I wanted to just touch on just a, a, one aspect of how we actually manage to deliver life in, in crypto, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but like these crypto visa debit cards, like the ones that ShakePay is coming out with, that you yep. can throw into like any subscription service. You can pay for things on Amazon. Um, you can deliver food to your host through the credit card. Like all visa debit, visa debit, right? Like any of these, right? These uh, like most of our money is digital anyway, and so it, it's really just figuring out how to connect the money that you already have in the crypto sphere into like get it to talk to. Um, the legacy payment system, let's call it um, Amazon and and the like. Um, that's that's kind of how we we managed to do that. And after we got our crypto.com card, everything became a lot more Way accessible. Easier. And yeah. yeah, our whole life, 
uh, living in crypto has like it's been a lot easier to to, to just pull it off in general yeah because if you can spend with your money to buy groceries for example then that's great and yes there is like a sort of a conversion because we still pay in canadian dollar but if since all of that happens on the app itself it's really not that much of a big deal uh, one yeah, thing i want to yeah go for no, it no Sorry. go ahead no no oh. go ahead Oh, I was going to say about the volatility of, of Bitcoin. If we're of the belief that over time it is the deflationary money, then as as long as this, the volatility isn't too much on a day-to-day basis, I don't think it matters. With respect to fiat, it seems like there still is volatility, but it's just, um, it just, it's, um, it's hidden so well and it's wrapped up so well and I'm not even sure what, but uh, <laughs> the volatility does, it does exist. And especially right now, since we're facing shortages in raw materials and since Good point. Uh, supply yeah. chains are backed up and we are st- see, starting to see costs of groceries go up and costs of raw material go up as a result of that. But I don't even think it's the end of it, right? Like right now, if you're spending $5 to buy um a bag of salad. That's a really bad example because you can grow salad here. But what is another example? Like I know there was a shortage in bike bikes because homes. some of the bike parts were shortage, right? not available. There's homes. I know that there's more specific things that are actually exported from other countries that we rely on heavily. Well, I think homes is actually a really good example for illustrating the volatility because I can't name a more volatile market in the last two years other than crypto, than the housing market. And that's because mm. it's a byproduct of lumber and- uh, mm, That's true. Um, insulation and pipes and labor. Um, yeah, <laughs> like labor shortage. Labor oh shortage gosh, right now. Yeah. Like all of, that's where the volatility of fiat is showing up really. And it almost feels like we're not fully seeing the the volatility of how much we get to, how much more we spend on day-to-day items because um why because why i'm not sure <laughs> you know like I, I, like i don't know maybe because we don't see it on a chart like we do bitcoin like today it can the canadian dollar is five percent up and yesterday it was five percent down you know it, I, it's hard to conceptualize but i know it's happening and it's all hidden somehow i really like that point that you mentioned where we actually do have volatility and i know like real estate's a really good example that's probably like the one market at least in canada where people understand there's volatility but i remember during the election campaign we just had at the forefront of conversation that we tracked was grocery prices right and everyone noticing that suddenly the grocery bill is getting a lot higher price of meat price of uh, weed like all these different items have gone up in price a lot so i think you're right in thinking that We've experienced fluctuations, maybe less dramatically than the Bitcoin market, but that fluctuations are potentially here to stay. And like you said, real estate's a really good example where I think people are more used to fluctuations in that, goes up and down a lot. Um, But less so, uh, I think people are less comfortable with groceries, right? Because that's a necessity. And I think as that fluctuates, people actually do get very anxious as we've analyzed uh, during the campaign. Um, So I think... People will get, whether I guess we like it or not, more comfortable with fluctuations, which I guess could be a good segue into introducing, you know, a deflationary currency that uh, (laughs) could fluctuate, but fluctuate uh, (laughs) towards the top right of the chart. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Before we wrap up this conversation, I do want to ask you a little, or I want to get to know more about your the role that you play in Parliament. Yes, that's are what you, I was. Are you sort of 
orange peeling them how does actually how does it <laughs> work do you are you in session every other week i'm very green to how being part of the parliament works yeah um so it gets very busy when parliament is in session so right now the house is not sitting um which means that uh the mem members themselves aren't there the pm himself is not there um, but basically the role is advising parliamentarians the pm uh some of his ministers on what the overall digital strategy should be um so advising them in one part some members of my team will do uh the basics and the fundamentals of utilizing social media platforms but on uh, the more high-end level it's utilizing uh data sciences to actually figure out what do canadians care about what should we start targeting in terms of specific announcements specific conversations that we can relay to the pm that he should be talking about uh, i guess a good example would be student loans and student interest um, which was something uh, I, I tracked for the pm in terms of a conversation that was happening and increasingly happening before the election campaign uh, after that we introduced the pause on student loan interest, which I think a lot of students appreciated. Uh, still a lot more to do, but I think on a higher level, that's that's a lot of, of what I do is direct that digital strategy, but base it on the fundamentals of the data sciences side so that we can make sure that at least our communications and our announcements and whatever releases we do in the future is based on what actually matters to Canadians. I know at least in Ottawa, uh, the saying is that it's very much a bubble, <laughs> and uh, I think part of my job is to to take the PM and and the team out of that bubble and try to make them understand what actually matters to Canadians and what are Canadians worried about, rather than uh, what matters in the bubble of Ottawa politics, which I still get surprised about. But uh, during family events and things like that, nobody really seems to care about the the Ottawa politics aspects of. Uh, of the political sphere, but there is a lot of issues that actually matter to them that is not in their perception. So part of my job is to really make sure that uh, the team is briefed on that and uh, that our communication products uh, reflect what actually matters to people. That's so interesting. That's like business 101 uh, or startup 101, <laughs> build what your customers want or listen to your customers, talk to your customers. And it almost sounds like the, the same sort of challenge is being faced by the House of Commons, if that's the correct term, yeah. or, or the yeah. government. Uh, th th wow, that's so it's It's like KYC, but like the good part of KYC. Right. <laughs> so know your customer, but in the good way, where we want to make sure that what we do is reflective of their needs rather than what we think their needs are. So it, it is an interesting place, but I think that's a lot where my interest with the decentralization of social media took a place where uh, you get to see of like the data that's being gathered from these social media networks. And we'll do a lot of frequent meetings with the reps from Twitter, the reps at Facebook and Instagram and kind of see like, what are people talking about? What kind of you know data can we take a look at and try to crunch the numbers and make models and in regards to potentially like some predictive analysis, we can do things like that. So I think that's where like, the concern for like decentralization came into play a little bit, um, but definitely good. I think for like the greater good of making sure we're at least targeting what actually matters to people. Right on. Uh, so I guess not too much talk about Bitcoin, but <laughs> your no, sorry, that was the question. Eh? Uh, I wish I could be orange pilling members of parliament and, uh, <laughs> and some ministers in the PM. Um, 
I, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around like bringing the blockchain to like a project just to be able to like introduce it as a concept. Um, that time has not come yet. I've been wrapping my brain for a few years of how I can meaningfully bring it in a, in a way that makes sense, not in the way we could just have a decentralized, uh, a centralized database. Um, but I think slowly, I think we'll have the conversations at parliament, but not in a work-related sense, in a much more, you know, fun conversation to have about what my interests are. <laughs> That's so fascinating, though, that it, it seems like um, the, the rate at which things are moving inside the government that is supposed to represent its people is way slower than the way that things are actually moving. And even in that, I'm sure there's too many, many complexities based on, you know, what demographic you're talking about, what area of Canada you're talking about. But um, I think that not just one bubble, there are probably so many bubbles all kind of operating within one another. And you're, you're, it seems like you're the person who's trying to bridge the bridge all of these bubbles together to try to connect them to what um, what you have found out the, the majority of Canada wants when it comes to um, communication and digitization. But that's such a- Exactly right. Such a fascinating place to be in, and, and like <laughs> the fact that you're you were trying to wrap your head around how you can bring blockchain to um, the the house, I guess, to talk to have them talk about it. That's incredible, but it's it's so fascinating. I, I like I'm sure you enjoy what you do. I love it. Yeah, I do. I do love the job a lot. Um, Canada's big. Canada's big yeah, geographically, so there's so many different groups of people that. Uh, you know, we have to learn and we have to discover what the needs are, but it makes for a very fun job is each day is different. Uh, the needs are different every single day. So it is a really fun kind of project to, uh, to continue to take on. Right on. That sounds awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us here, Tristan. Where can people find you for questions and get in touch with you? Uh, I was very smart back in the day, so I did all my <laughs> social media handles as my first and last name. So kudos to uh, the like seven-year-old me, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so I guess uh, Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash or at Tristan LaMonica. So just my first and last name. And that's pretty much the same everywhere. So I'm proud of my seven-year-old self for that. That was, that was smart thinking. <laughs> also proud of your two, whatever age you were in 2013 when during your computer science project, you discovered Bitcoin and decided, hey, there must be something to this. <laughs> yeah, much kudos. But thank you. Thank you both for having me on. This was a really, really great conversation. My first podcast. So uh, really good Ooh. experience. And here's to yeah, many more. Really yes. good questions. Re really appreciate that. That was great. Yes. Yeah. We, we learned so much. And thank you for sharing your perspective with us, too. Awesome. awesome. Everyone listening, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs>